1: it's time for school rock school with your hosts dr joe burns come on yeah
0: well alice says that he wanted when they were designing this, he wanted them to put a real shock in there so if you made a mistake you would get knocked back about six feet but they he said there were some legalities that prevented it
1: class is in This is the Rock School Radio Show here on the Rock School Radio Network. Tammy is away for another week. My name is Joe Burns, and we are continuing with Joe's book. Club. I believe Oprah stole the idea from me. Over the summer, I was lucky enough to have some publishers contact me and say, we've got great books. Would you like to read them and put them on your show? You bet. Today, we're going to be doing a book called Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs, My Adventures in the Alice Cooper Group by Dennis Dunaway, the bassist for the Alice Cooper Group. Dennis Dunaway is also the co-author of some of the group's biggest hits, including I'm 18 and School's Out, and was one of the main archivists architects in the Alice Cooper stage show and he has this book snakes guillotines electric chairs my adventures in the Alice Cooper group it has just come out on paperback and uh, Dennis has also asked me if I would tell you to go check out his current band Blue Coop Band check him out at bluecoopband.com spell coop like a car c-o-u-p-e There is a lot more than what you're going to hear in this show. If you'd like to hear the raw audio of the interview, please go to the Rock School website. That's southeastern.edu slash rock school. We're underway. Dennis Dunaway, bassist for Alice Cooper here on Rock School. On the phone with me, bassist Dennis Dunaway from the Alice Cooper Group. Thank you so much, Dennis. you go by Dennis or you go by Denny or what?
0: Uh, I go by Dennis. My grandma called me Denny and that was about it.
1: That's all that could get away with it. Your book is titled Snakes, Guillotines, Electric Chairs, My Adventures in the Alice Cooper Group. And let me just tell the audience and I'll compliment you at the same time. This is the perfect rock and roll story. If you wrote this and took it to Hollywood, they tell you to get lost because it's too beautiful in that it has every rock and roll trope do you know that
0: well um it is the the ideal you know story of starry-eyed high school kids getting this dream and then pursuing it to you know the tippity top of the glittery rock pile now you start wouldn't be the first time it wouldn't be the first time hollywood told me to get lost
1: (laughs) i think that's part of their job uh, it starts right off that you say in fond memory of guitarist Glenn Buxton, and I thought that was wonderful. Tell us about Glenn Buxton.
0: Uh, Glenn was uh, the, the kid at high school when Alice and I decided that we were going to start a band. We didn't even have any idea what we were going to do in a band. I mean, we didn't know that Alice would be the singer and I would be the bass player. But we were going to do a spoof on the Beatles, and we were going to call ourselves the (laughs) Earwigs, and buy Beetle Wigs and wear those and and pretend we were from Cesspool, England and do a show at our high school, which was uh, Cortez High School in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. This was 1964. And the Beatles had just broke big. And uh, we knew we needed somebody that could play guitar so that we could pretend that we were playing and at least have somebody that could play the, the music for us. So we talked this uh, tough guy from Ohio into being our guitar player, and that was Glenn Buxton, who, when it came to music, he was uh, open for discussion.
1: a local group of heroes, really started really started taking off, and I wanted to sort of compliment you on this one part of the book, where you talk about your very first gig, where people got up and walked out, that ends the chapter, you turn the page, and it starts, a few years later we were headliners, you, you just skipped the whole thing, man, <laughs> you went from people walking out to we were headliners. What, can you fill some of that in? We, did you become instantly headliners? Or did it take a few years?
0: No, no, it it was not overnight. That's for sure. It depended. I mean, if if we played in a certain town uh, and we were on a festival, then there'd be thousands of people. You know, and the next night we'd be in a bar with three people and uh that would be the owner the janitor who was looking at his watch to see when we would be done <laughs> you know, that, that kind of a thing mm-hmm. but um uh you know it really was so up and down because we, our image uh, was controversial we had a lot of people that didn't like us and didn't give our music a chance because of the image Mm -hmm. And uh, it took a long time for me to finally admit that we had actually made it because uh, we would play a gigantic show, big success, and then we'd do some more of these where it was questionable. Uh, But when we played the Hollywood Bowl, I said, okay, nobody plays the Hollywood Bowl unless they've made it. We've made it.
1: And that had to be a fantastic feeling, because in the book it starts to go to heck after that, but that had to be a fantastic feeling because how many people in their life get to stare out at the, you know, the horizon and say, I made it, I did it, I succeeded, and you did.
0: Yeah, well, you know, uh, fame is uh, a pleading thing, you know, it's like, okay, we had a, an incredible show last night, now we have to do it again. Right. That's if tonight to... is a disaster, then that's what they'll be talking about.
1: I'm sure it would be. <laughs> to ask you about one story in the book that sounds like something every band would think about doing but you actually went forward and did it you opened for the yarbirds and by opening for the yarbirds you played nothing but yarbirds song i had to laugh out loud at that did that really happen
0: oh boy talk about green behind the ears we we were just you know teenagers just uh, fresh out of high school alice was still in high school it was 1966 and uh yeah i have a photograph of the marquee uh the spiders and the yardbirds and september 4th 1966 i remember because that's my daughter's birthday even though she wasn't born then of right. course
1: but yeah
0: we you know this friend of ours this guy named mike fuss uh brought a yardbirds album over he had sent away to england he had heard about them and sent away for the album and he brought it over and and put it on the him and Glenn buxton they came over to my parents house where i lived at the time and and they put on this record and and this song mister you're a better man than i you know it was kind of dum 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 you know, and I thought it kind of plodded along, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, what's on the next song? And they go, no, wait a minute, wait till the guitar break, you man. And uh, when the guitar came in, I was sold, block, stock, and barrel. So we didn't know that much about the Yardbirds. All we knew is they had a hit, I'm a Man. Uh, and, then, um, uh, and then they had uh, Shapes of Things, which uh, this policeman that worked at the local club in Phoenix where we had become... It was a very popular teen club, and we had become the house band and had gotten very popular with our theatrical antics and everything. And so they would bring in like various groups that were on their way up, you know, the Lovin Spoonful and uh, Bobby Fuller Four and the Righteous Brothers and all kinds of things. Uh, And we would open for all of those bands. Mm -hmm. Well, we decided that we were going to learn these songs off of this album by this new band called the yardbirds because they were going to be coming in and years later i mean more recent years uh i talked to jeff beck about this uh one-on-one and alice told me that he had the same conversation with him more than once but what, what did he say asking if he remembered that <laughs> i asked him do you remember <laughs> he said I remember it. He said, I wish I could do his British accent, but he said, I remember it. We were flying. we had never even seen a cactus before and we're thinking we're gonna see cowboys and Indians and everything in Arizona and and we think nobody's gonna have a clue who we are, you know, and the opening band does all of our songs. Did <laughs> well
1: it upset of him?
0: course uh, you know, and there were some kids that uh that thought that uh they, they were such hardcore Spiders fans, which was the name of our band at that point. We had migrated from a bug called an earwig to a bug called a spider. Uh, and anyway, uh, uh, there was a policeman that worked at the club, and most of the policemen didn't like us because we had long hair. And back then, that was a whole you know edgy thing with the cowboys and with the police in arizona but this one cop loved the song shapes of things Mm -hmm. to the point where where he would be on our side as long as we played that song for him he would point his billy club at glenn buxton and say shapes (laughs) (laughs) and we had to play it at least once a night to keep him happy so kids got to know uh, relate that song to us and when the yardbirds played There were a few of our hardcore fans that thought they were doing our song. That's great!
1: you started your uh, answer with this by saying green behind the ears. There was another uh, story in the book. Again, I had to laugh out loud at it. You guys were, I don't know, going to get something to eat or something like that, and you walk past Mercury Records and basically said, hey, let's go in and audition. Oh, come on. Who does that? You have to wait months, well, and they have to come see bold. you. we were
0: bold. We were bold and desperate <laughs> in a town called Hollywood. And uh, there were three thousand bands we had heard that were had come there to make it big, and there were not that many venues to get a paying gig at. Well, you know, we were we had a lot of gigs. People made fun of us because of how we looked when we, you know, we dressed full tilt when we walked down the street together. But but uh, yeah, it's broad daylight. We were walking all the way from Topanga Canyon all the way up to the Capitol Records building because across the street was this wonderful little taco hut that uh, you could uh, feed a family of five and get changed from a five-dollar bill, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it was good. So we would walk all, or as Glenn Buxton would say, we'd hoof it down there and, and buy Mexican food. But on the way, we'd, all, we'd keep passing Mercury Records. We're going, you know what? let's go in, it's hot out here, it's got to be air conditioning in there, let's go and see if we can get a record deal, you know, just spur of the moment. Wow. And we went in, and these guys were in the control room, and then there was nothing happening. These guys were just kind of sitting there bored. We're like, you know, uh, we'd, uh, we'd like to audition for a, for a record deal. And they're like, well, it's your lucky day, man, the equipment's all in there, let's hear what you got. We're like, oh, really? You know, and we knew that uh, Talk Talk was recorded there, the mm-hmm. Music Machine, right? And we knew that song. In fact, in fact it was one of our better, uh, more powerful cover songs uh, as the Spiders. So, so we played Talk Talk and played a couple of other original songs, and they came in and stopped us, and they they offered us a a deal, except there was one catch. Mm-hmm. They wanted the band and not Alice because they wanted us to back up the guy from the music machine.
1: Isn't that funny? Isn't that and
0: funny? And we, we turned it down because, no, we're a band, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I got to tell you, that had to be difficult at the time because the, the point is to make it, and they just dangled the carrot in front of you. But it's, I think it's great that you stayed true to the band.
0: Uh, yeah, we were you know we uh we were very loyal to each other and mm-hmm. and it was it was also based around an artistic vision that we all shared so strongly and we had fought so hard uh to make it happen at that point even though it hadn't happened yet it was happening on a certain level like you know we were opening for a lot of great bands the doors and uh buffalo springfield and janice joplin all kinds of stuff there we even had to follow aretha franklin back in those days
1: how nice how nice not
0: so nice if you i'm going whose idea was this (laughs) she's incredible wow yeah we uh, yeah we that was one of the nights where they were lined up for the exits when we came on
1: we need to take our first break here on the show but we'll be back to talking with dennis dunaway author of snakes guillotines electric chairs my adventures in the alice cooper group and once again check out his current group the blue coop band c-o-u-p-e bluecoopband.com back in a minute here on rock school Hey there, Rock School listener. Let me give you a few nuts and bolts of the show. You want to get in touch with Tammy or me or Todd for some reason? Go to southeastern.edu slash rockschool. Once again, southeastern.edu slash rockschool. You can get us on Facebook by searching Rock School Radio Show. You can get us on podcast over iTunes, so they send it right to your front door. Go to iTunes and search Rock School kslu there's other ways of getting there but that's the easiest way rock school kslu also if you don't like listening to the podcast where the music is clipped we're following bmi rules when we do that if you'd like to hear with all the music in place go to the prx network prx.org once again prx.org you can't download the show but you sure can stream it and all the music is in place thanks for listening but you did get signed along comes frank zappa's label and you do get signed
0: yep we and we managed to get on the label with uh captain beefheart wild man fisher the gtos i think there was a band called ethiopia Mm -hmm. uh and you know and of course the mothers of invention we that was our first real tour right we got we got to tour with the mothers and open for them and all of a sudden, all these people that had been making fun of us in L.A., you know, we were kind of the butt of the, a lot of jokes. But uh, but now, all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, with Frank Zappa's stamp of approval, we better give them another chance, you know. And then then we ended up uh, opening for the mothers at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, which we couldn't even afford to, to go in to uh, pay to get in to have a beer at the bar mm-hmm. at the time. And then also right after that, a couple weeks after that, uh, we shared the bill with a brand new group uh, called Led Zeppelin. And uh, we conquered the we conquered the whiskey a go go. So uh, all of a sudden, uh, people weren't making fun of us so much anymore.
1: Yeah, I tell you, I said it at the beginning of the interview. This is I mean, this is a complete rock and roll Hollywood story. No one would believe it if you wrote it as fiction. You guys really sat on top, hey, let me ask you well, me ask, you know there was ahead. a
0: lot of our, there was a lot of camaraderie back then between bands. Uh, it was starting to get more of a competitive us against them kind of a thing, but you know it was us against the world, but the doors would come over to our house, and Arthur Lee and Paul Rothschild and Bill David Crosby and people like that. so bands stuck together, so you had the feeling that okay, even though the doors were big, they still felt like they were a local band, you know? And, and mm-hmm. so uh, you had a lot of this sort of thing where we're all going for it, but the but when you think of the competition then, you know, you had every great, you know, yet, uh, it was following the Beatles and still in the shadow of the Beatles, the Stones, Hendrix, you know, there were so many great bands that... uh uh, that you had to you had to really come up with something different to be able to stand out at all. Mm-hmm. So that was our main goal: try to do some things that have never been done before. And right. theatrics was one, but also our music <clears throat> got very avant-garde. And "Pretty for You" album, which caught the attention of Frank Zappa, uh, you know that that was very different. There's never been an album like it. Before or since, I don't think, but the telephone is ringing. You got me on the run.
1: Tell us about, this. even the most casual Alice Cooper fan has heard this story, but you told it differently than I know it. Tell us about the chicken incident.
0: Uh, Yeah, it does have a lot of variations, doesn't it?
1: Yes, it does. I think
0: some of the variations uh, came about in the early days when, uh, you know, after that happened, that was... uh, something that we had been doing for a little while Uh, Glenn Buxton would do this thing where he would tap on the strings of the guitar and during this song called Lay Down and Die Goodbye and that tapping sound reminded me of chickens clucking (laughs) so we got this guy named Larry from Detroit to get some chickens and then we would just have our roadies set them up on the amp during this when Glenn was doing this uh the sound on his guitar and then we were all sworn, if somebody says, what were the chickens doing up there, we'll act like, what chickens? You know, mm-hmm. that we didn't know. Okay, well, this worked out to be a much better idea than we had imagined because the chickens on stage, while we're rolling tires across the stage and while we're doing all of this chaotic stuff, the chickens were totally oblivious to it. They would just sit there perched on the amp and and act as if nothing was happening. So, so they stayed in the show. They would uh, stay in Glenn Buxton's hotel room, which, so, which meant he would come over to the other rooms to use the bathroom, because his bathroom smelled like a chicken coop. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and he named them Larry and Pecker. So uh, sure. So anyway, we would, we would uh, use them in the show that way, and then we did a few smaller venues where Alice would toss them out to the crowd, and then somebody would bring them backstage, and then we'd buy them dinner and stuff, and mm-hmm. they'd give us our, our pet chicken back. Well, at the festival, Alice got carried away, and this is one of the things he says that I that I believe 100% is that he actually thought the chicken would fly, and he tossed it out, and it kind of floundered down into the crowd, and, and they fought over it like it was a souvenir, which we didn't plan on, and and so the, the, his version of the chicken story was that, uh, well, you know, he talked about the, all of the, the people that were in wheelchairs that were in the front of the crowd. Well, that's not who ripped it apart. That mm-hmm. was a, actually a different night. This happened at Varsity Stadium in, uh, Canada, which was the rock and roll revival that John Lennon did and recorded. Uh, but, um, so now when we go to these other venues uh all of a sudden fans would have rubber chickens and be holding them up and, <laughs> and uh but but the problem was <laughs> um. the the humane society the fire marshal everybody in the world was there to stop us from performing in their town and we got banned from some towns like Binghamton uh New York uh because of the chicken, and we didn't know what was going on at first. We were just traveling town to town, and all of a sudden, it starts to sink in that this chicken deal turned out to be uh, uh, bring a, re- a reputation uh, with us. So, uh, so what? Um, wow. What actually happened is we used the chickens. We put them inside a pillowcase, took them to the show, and then. Alice, the roadie would have it at a certain part of the set, and then Alice would put the chickens on the amp, or he would toss one into the audience. So that's what happened that night. It was planned, but, but we started telling people that it wasn't planned, that some fan threw it on stage or whatever, just because uh, uh, they would stop us from playing. Right. And we didn't use the chicken after that. That was the end. That was the end of it. We might have used it one more time in Detroit, but but uh, yeah. but we pretty much stopped doing it.
1: So now you're a hit, and through the book, you talk about the size of the audiences and the people that come, Uh, over 150,000 people in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but you also start to lament that because the band's name is now Alice Cooper, it's so easy to say that one person must be Alice Cooper, and that goes to Vince, and you say that starts to drive a wedge into the band. Could you... uh, I mean, could you really see it that hard and could you tell us about what it did to the band?
0: Well, it actually happened in, uh, you know, conscientious uh, planning. We we decided as a group that um, uh, it was confusing to a lot of people that Alice Cooper was Five Guys and Alice Cooper was the singer as well. We're like, well, What's confusing about that, what about Manfred Mann? Everybody figured that out, you know, so all we have to do is tell them what we want them to know and that's what they'll know. But we found that it was easier for, you know, it's just, when you think about it, if you get a little picture in the newspaper and it's five guys, it can look like, you know, 50 different groups, you know, but if it's one guy, it can be a bigger picture and it can be more effective, especially with the eye makeup, which I came up with that idea in New York City for Alice to Wear the spidery eye makeup.
1: Tell us where you got and that.
0: It was the Joffrey Ballet in New York City Was uh, made this big poster that was uh, promoting their spring season. And uh, and there were four of these giant posters, seven feet tall and three feet wide, on the front of the New York City Center, which is still there, it still looks exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were in town, and we used to all share rooms in those days, and I was sharing a room with Alice, and I, I got in the room, and he started fiddling with the television, I looked out the window and saw these four posters like two stories down, and said, Alice, come here, look at this. And He looked, but he was more interested in the television, you know. And I'm like, look at the the eyes on that clown. It was a clown with this uh, spidery kind of spiky eye makeup. I said, if you wore wore makeup like that, people in the back row could see you. I I mean, you'd stand out. And so Alice was uh, semi-interested, but not really. So when, uh, I kept checking out the window and when I saw a line at the box office, I went down there and stood in line. When I got up to the box office window, I said, Hey, can I have one of those posters? And they said, well, no, not until the, the pr- uh, promotion is over with, but here's, they gave me a couple of smaller ones. So I took it back and showed it to Alice and he's like, Oh, okay. Well, so we pulled our money and went down and found some drug store where we bought some, uh, whip, uh, some uh not whiplash (laughs) that was was a later thing uh but eye makeup eyeliner and went back to the hotel room and alice put it on and and i was watching him he's looking in the mirror and and he's putting the makeup on and when he was done i said so what do you think and alice said uh i don't know about for stage but for every day
1: oh sure (laughs) Yeah, for everyday use, it really works. It really does. Uh,
0: but that uh, but that was the beginning of it, so that became uh, you know, and and the band uh, all agreed that we should write some songs to help develop this dark character that Alice had done on one one song early on, Fields of Regret on the mm-hmm. Pretty For You album. He did different characters for each song, and on Fields of regret. He did this darker character, and that seemed to be the one thing that really the the audience found re- could relate to. And so we decided, okay, well, we've got to write some songs and develop this character. And uh, so so it was, uh, you know, we we all agreed on the effort to present Alice as a character, he was going to be both things. It was going to be Alice Cooper, the character, and it was going to be Alice Cooper, the entire group.
1: We need to take our second break here on Rock School. We'll get back to talking with Dennis Dunaway. Once again, check out his current group, BlueCoopBand.com, and also look for a Kickstarter campaign. Cold Cold Coffin is the song and video that they're attempting to raise money for. Once again, Blue Coop Band, look for the Kickstarter campaign. Back in a minute here on Rock School. Hey, Rock School listener, you hear this little thing going on right now, this, this music bed that goes on for a minute, we do it twice during the show, this is where a sponsor should be, this is where an underwriter should be, if you or some business you know might want to be that sponsor or underwriter of the Rock School Radio Show, please have that person give us a call, 985-549-2330. Once again, 985-549-2330. You can sponsor the radio show, you can sponsor the podcast, you can sponsor both, there's other ways of doing it, so call that number, 985-549-2330, and talk with Rachel, or you can talk to Todd if you really want to talk to Todd for some reason, but Rachel's really who you want to speak Speaking of that, there's a section in the book where you guys are now touring on billion-dollar babies. And you had gone on and on about the success and the people, and you said we were not billionaires. Not only we weren't even millionaires. And I kind of shook my head at that and I thought, you're the biggest band in the world. How is it possible you're, mean I wanted to ask you this specifically, how is it possible you're that popular, all the tours, the records, the merchandise, and you're and you're not a wealthy young man yet? How is that possible?
0: Well, uh, also, Schools Out was the biggest selling single in the history of Warner Brothers. There you go. So that's the question that the group started asking, you know. And the uh, reasoning that we got uh, was that we're sinking all of our money into the show. Hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, we're like, well, then maybe we should not do the show so we can make some money. <laughs> you know? right. And we weren't serious about that because, you know, we we were later, later on painted to be have decided that we weren't going to do theatrics anymore, and that all we wanted to do is split up the money and and just get up there and play our songs. And that wasn't true at all. Mm-hmm. And that just all we wanted to know is, hey, wait a minute! If we have the biggest selling single in the history of Warner Brothers records, you know, uh, then how come I can't afford to buy a car?
1: <laughs> yeah, a good question. A real good question.
0: So. Well, uh, it's not the first time in rock and roll history that that uh, sort of scenario has gone down. Well, There's I'm... a lot of uh, great bands that were in worse situations than we were.
1: Of success, it is so damn impressive. You're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You are in the. Dennis, you're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, people are critical of the Rock Hall <laughs> because they want their favorite band that hasn't been inducted yet to get in. Well, we went through that for quite a few years. You know, there was over a decade where we were eligible in more ways than one and in more ways than many of the groups that. Had been inducted were, uh, but we finally got in. And there's still bands out there that that should be in that aren't in yet. And I have a vote now, so I can I can vote accordingly. But uh, you know, I always say, if if they inducted everybody that d- deserves to be inducted tomorrow, what are they going to do next year?
1: That's true. That's so, true. Uh,
0: And the Rock Hall, there's two entities. There's the Rock Hall Committee in New York City. And then there's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum staff, who are just the most wonderful people ever. Uh, they, they, uh, it's always red carpet. Um, and, uh, and the Rock Hall is a magical place. They've just redone it. It's all, uh, Uh, jazzed up now. It was cool before, but it's even cooler now. Mm -hmm. And they just opened this new exhibit, Pinball Machines. So you've got rock and roll pinball machines, Kiss, and uh, even Dolly Parton. I think that's the only female that's represented.
1: Is there there an Alice Cooper pinball machine?
0: There is, and it is loud. (laughs) The volume on that thing will knock you over. And Uh, it's Alice talking to you, and it's quite elaborate. I mean, Uh, Alice and I did the presentation recently and uh, because I loaned them the original electric chair from the Alice Cooper show, the Love It to Death Tour, Mm -hmm. and Alice loaned them his Andy Warhol painting of an electric chair. So him and I both uh, dedicated, opened the new uh, exhibit. When you buy a ticket there, you get uh, coins so you can go and actually play these machines.
1: Oh, you can touch them. And
0: So uh, oh. Alice played his machine He was the first person to play his machine and I was the second person to play it and my wife Cindy was the third person to play it and uh, Cindy kind of mopped the floor with both of us right. Alice and I were pretty pathetic <laughs>
1: the name of the book again snakes guillotines or as you said guillotines electric chairs my adventures in the alice cooper group and it is written by dennis dunaway the bassist for the group and the person who was there from the beginning i'll I'll finish the interview by saying what i did at the beginning it is literally the perfect rock and roll hollywood story and you guys were certainly trailblazers dennis thank you so much for spending an hour of your time with me Ah, thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. It was wonderful. And uh, I think people are really going to enjoy it, and they should, if there's any interest simply in the world of rock and roll, buy the book, because I loved it. Absolute cover to cover. Thanks again. Thank you.